ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, why a proposed extradition law has stirred massive protests in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a major world financial center and commercial port. For more than 150 years, it was also a British colony. But that ended in 1997 when the UK officially handed Hong Kong back to China. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise, and that is the unshakable destiny. With the handover, Hong Kong became a special administrative region of China with its own say in economic and governing matters. At the same time, China agreed to allow Hong Kong 50 years of relative freedom. But over time, that independence has eroded. Almost five years ago, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets protesting changes to Hong Kong's electoral system. Hundreds of thousands packed the streets of downtown Hong Kong as police... Students and others blocked roads for months in what became known as the Umbrella Movement. ...demonstrators shielding themselves with umbrellas and spawning the so-called Umbrella Revolution. Protesters, mostly students, are demanding full democracy. Now Hong Kongers are out in the streets again, this time protesting an extradition bill that could send lawbreakers to prison in mainland China. The demonstrators say the legislation could help cement Communist Party authority in Hong Kong. Scores of people have been injured as riot police have fired tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowds. Everyone was a target, including us. Oh! Already, the smoke and the tear gas is making its way here. So does this latest movement in Hong Kong have a chance of succeeding? And what does it say about the current strength of the Chinese Communist Party? Here to help us answer that and other questions is Frank Langford. He's a correspondent for NPR. He's written a book about his experiences in China called The Shanghai Free Taxi, Journeys with the Hustlers and Rebels of the New China. Frank, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Sarah. So as you, like the rest of the world, has been watching, Hong Kong is undergoing a wave of major protests, which we'll get to a little bit later in our conversation. But I want to go back a little bit. Sure. Because you were on the ground in Hong Kong in 1997 with the handover. Yep. Let's talk about how Hong Kong was a colony to begin with. Well, you know, the history of the city is completely different than the history of any other city in China. I mean, obviously, uh, there were neo-colonial cities like Shanghai, which were treaty ports, but Hong Kong was indeed a colony. And so from the, you know, from 1840, 1842 on, 
it had a completely different system. And it was also an incredibly successful one. You had British rule of law. You didn't have democracy, but it was a much more open and cosmopolitan place. It was a watching post for China. And it was also a kind of a mix of East and West. Um, and in many good ways, there were a lot of sort of the protections of Western society, but obviously a very rich uh, Chinese culture right there on the South China Sea. So a very different city than you would find anywhere else in China. And I think we're seeing those differences really most acutely right now. And we should acknowledge that Hong Kong is a major port, which yeah, obviously... Huge impact- port. That, how did that have an impact on its culture? I think it's, it's much more cosmopolitan. You've got to remember up until... 79, the opening, particularly with the United States, China, certainly during the Mao era, was, in, was just incredibly close. So, for instance, I lived in Shanghai, and my kids went to the Shanghai American School. That's a, a school with over 100 years of history, but there's a long period of time when it wasn't even open. It was mm. closed because under Mao, there just was almost no access from the West, and particularly for Americans. Hong Kong was always sort of this cosmopolitan hub just, you know, right up against the mainland. And then, of course, Hong Kong Island, which is just off the mainland. So 1997, you're there on the ground in the run-up to and then the Mm -hmm. actual night of the handover. What did it feel like to be there? You did feel like it was a huge moment in the history of communist China and basically China and the West. China has been From a Chinese perspective, they talk about, as you're probably very familiar and listeners will be familiar, the 100 years of humiliation in which uh, they lost Hong Kong. Uh, They had to open up these treaty ports in places like Shanghai, which they didn't want to do. Uh, They were forced to do that. And then war with the Japanese, invasion, all of that. And so what the Chinese government, the Communist Party has been doing for quite some time now is sort of consolidating what it lost, bringing back Hong Kong in 97. Macau from the Portuguese in 99, eventually Taiwan. And so that's sort of the perspective. And so you could see a much, much stronger China in 97, still maybe the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world, beginning to consolidate and return to sort of the way it saw itself historically. And of course, the British having to give it up. And it was very interesting, too. There is some writing on this that I think, and if I remember correctly in the archives, that there was talk of the British trying to introduce some sort of democracy and Deng Xiaoping threatening to send the People's Liberation Army in. Because even then he knew that you couldn't have that. You, you couldn't have a Chinese city right up against that border with a completely different system. But they did usher in one country, two systems. What did that mean? Well, it means something very different today than it did in 97. The whole concept was that Hong Kong, after 97 and for 50 years, would be able to keep its way of life, essentially. That means the British rule of law system, free speech, free press. They're very good in terms of anti-corruption. It's a much more Western kind of society. And was that negotiated at what, po- at what point? That was, was that negotiated, negotiated between the British and the Chinese. It was between Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher. In 84 or so. Yeah. And so the idea was Hong Kong would get 50 more years of living. Of this system, right? They would not be immediately absorbed. It would not have to become communist or anything like that because that would have been just a completely radical change and Lord knows what it would have. I mean, you'd have to send in the army if you wanted to do that. They get this agreement, but at the same time, was there a culture of dissidence and anxiety among Hong Kongers? There was. And I can, it's really, I remember at midnight on that night, the People's Liberation Army rolling across the border into Hong Kong. And there was a feeling of dread. And I think they came to the Prince of Wales barracks um, that night, right on Victoria Harbor. 
there was great concern. You know, there's a history in Hong Kong of people coming there who are exiled from China, certainly in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, people literally made rafts and floated down the Pearl River and swam to Hong Kong. But many of them have always had a second passport because Hong Kong always seemed a temporary place, not you know, neither east nor west. And that night, one of my strongest memories was standing outside the Legislative Council building as China was taking back control, and there were the Democratic legislators, particularly Martin Lee, the godfather of Chinese democracy, vowing to do everything that they could to keep Hong Kong free and to continue to push for political representation inside Hong Kong for ordinary people and to resist the authoritarian regime that was essentially taking control of the city. There is a mix now. I mean, there are democratically elected lawmakers, of course, but you you have different factions. You have pro-Beijing people, particularly some of them uh, may have a mainland background. Also, they are very much oriented towards the economy of China and see great advantage to integrating with China because the economy is so huge there now. And, And just, I think, recently, the Shenzhen economy surpassed the Hong Kong economy. So Hong Kong no longer has the kind of leverage that it once had. And it's very dependent on the mainland in a way that was not true uh, 22 years ago. Do you think there was more anxiety? I mean, 1997 was not even a decade after Mm -hmm. Tiananmen. Was there anxiety having watched what happened in Tiananmen with the handover? There was some, but you know, it's interesting. I look back on what we wrote then as journalists. And at the time, I felt like our coverage was maybe a little sensationalistic in the sense that we talked about the gloom and doom. But in fact, the reality was nothing was going to change soon. And so even 10 years on, as I looked, sometimes I would go back and look at my own writings and go, you know, was it was it a little over the top or a little too dark in terms of its approach? I now feel our coverage was right or maybe should have been even tougher because we've seen what's happened. Um, and it's become very clear that this regime under Xi Jinping cannot tolerate one country, two systems. I want to spend one more moment on sure. the night of 1997, the handover There's video archives of the last governor from the UK being handed back the British flag and and looking really overcome with emotion. This is Chris Patton, right? Yeah. Yeah. My wife, uh, we covered this together. My wife was doing photography for the Baltimore Sun, which is where I worked. And she was actually up at the governor's mansion when they took down the British seal. And she has photos of it. Now, of course... You've know, you got to remember, most people who lived under British colonialism, they didn't think it was such a great thing in a lot of ways. That said, Hong Kong was an enormously successful experiment in a colonial rule. And if you remember, during Mao's era, China was a mess and economically was nothing. And then Hong Kong was a thriving place because it had the rule of law. It had a market economy, things like that. In 2014, there were major, major protests Mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. And you mentioned that your original coverage, you thought at first perhaps it had been too sensational, that really the two systems were working. But something started to shift. What happened? I think what became clear is that China was not going to allow the people of Hong Kong to have a real role in choosing who led Hong Kong. And this was about who would be the next chief executive And the Chinese Communist Party was essentially rigging the system to make sure it got somebody who was pro-Beijing. And the real fear there, I think, for Xi Jinping was that they would get an anti-Communist Party head of Hong Kong. Well, you can see from their perspective, this is a total mess. I mean, under Xi Jinping, 
China's become much more repressive. It's become much more uniform politically. And you couldn't have this very wealthy city right up against the border with Shenzhen with somebody who was anti-Beijing. Um, people always used to say people in Hong Kong didn't care about politics. All they cared about was making money and that because it was such a transient society, they didn't have a Hong Kong identity, really. They didn't really care that much. But what we found in 2014 is they cared a lot about democracy. They were very sophisticated people and thought they should have the right to make these decisions about who ruled them and who guided their government. And they also had been feeling a lot of encroachment from the mainland, and that's when things erupted. And we saw extraordinary demonstrations uh, that fall in 2014 in uh, the center of Hong Kong, as well up in Mong Kok on the other side of uh, on the Kowloon Peninsula. It was called the Umbrella Movement. It was. Why was that? The reason it was called the Umbrella Movement is early on, uh, and it's eerie because it's actually so similar to what we've just seen. You've seen people out with umbrellas. For me, it's deja vu. Um, because of the pepper spray that the police were using, people brought umbrellas to block the pepper spray. And so that's how it became known as the Umbrella Movement. And that became the symbol of standing up. And it's a very much, politically very much a David and Goliath story. This is a city, I believe, still of less than 7 million compared to the mainland, which is one, about 1.4 billion now. And of course, the Chinese economy is second in the world and Hong Kong would be much, much smaller. Did you meet individual demonstrators in 2014? Oh, yeah. I spent most of the fall in the camps. I found it, having covered the handover, I found it fascinating to go back so many years later. And so I probably did five or six trips over a period of two, three months. And what was interesting is there were a lot of students, but there were a lot of ordinary Hong Kong people who had to develop a certain political identity. They didn't see themselves as mainland Chinese. They didn't see themselves as people who lived under the government of the Chinese Communist Party. They have a very separate identity and very separate values. I mean, when I talk to people in Hong Kong versus talking to people in the mainland, I would say they have very little in common. The conversations are different. The values are different. And that's part of a, a lot of this conflict is over identity. So the Chinese Communist Party is very worried about holding the country together as people have become so much more wealthy, more sophisticated, greater expectations because of the growth as well as their own travel and education overseas. And what it feels it has to do on its periphery is to break other identities. I'll just say it. That's exactly what they're doing. Everybody in Hong Kong knows that they want to turn Hong Kong into just another southern city in China. I mean, it's interesting because, of course, China is a country of many, many identities. Well, but not from the party's perspective. So, like, let's look at the periphery, because I think it's very good to look at the periphery of China to understand where the Communist Party is coming from, what are their greatest fears, and let's watch what they've done. In Tibet, there was a period of time a number of years ago where monks were lighting themselves on fire because of the repression, and they put monasteries, cities on lockdown. And I got to say, this is very different from when I was there in the 90s. I mean, in the 90s in Beijing, yes, it's an authoritarian country, but it was pretty freewheeling. And you could talk to a lot of people about a lot of topics and people were not scared. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even hope, I think, post Tiananmen, and maybe this was naive of many of us, that over time, engagement with the West, the reality of a, of a population that was going to travel a great deal more, that things would progressively become more open and liberal, not democratic, but just it's gone in a very different direction. And I think what we've seen is in Xinjiang recently, which is shocking, um, 
a million or more people, obviously, as a lot of people know now, are in detention camps. And most Chinese don't know much about it at all. The government's done a very good job of hiding this. So it's basically putting out When you out say fires. they don't know, it's because the information is so controlled within Extremely the well controlled, far better than any of us ever imagined. So there's a famous line that probably many of your listeners will remember when in the late 90s, Bill Clinton said, you know, the Chinese government is never going to be able to control information. It's going to be like nailing jello to the wall. Well, that jello turns out to be extremely adhesive in ways <laughs> that none of us imagined. And I include myself in this. I mean, this is a, a very adaptive authoritarian regime, and we have not appreciated. I mean, they always seem to, sometimes it takes them a while to make the right move for their purposes, but they are very deft at figuring out ways to make this all work. And so if you look at Xinjiang, you now have, what, a million Uyghurs, and in these camps, it's very clear that they're trying to secularize them. And create in them a Han Chinese, ethnic Chinese identity, even though they're Turkic-speaking people. They're really from Central Asia. I mean, their culture is Central Asian. And so, again, it comes down to uh, the Uyghurs see themselves as separate, and the government has created these camps to basically try to pull them into a national identity and ideology. Same problem in Hong Kong. Of course, even worse in, in Taiwan, because that's a democratic, de facto independent country. How did the Taiwanese see the 2014 protests in Hong Kong? Uh, all cautionary tales. So mm -hmm. what the government in China had been saying for a long time is one country, two systems. This could be a model for Taiwan. Well, if you're Taiwanese and you have any interest in democracy or freedom, you're looking at what's happening in Hong Kong and saying, well, how about never? <laughs> I'm never going to – because why would you give all that up? Especially Hong Kong is not – I mean, it's quasi-democratic, but it's not democratic like the U.S. or many countries in, in most countries in Western Europe. Taiwan is a raucous democracy, warts and all. Um, so I think that as they, they watch what's going on in, uh, in Hong Kong, it's very hard to see how the Communist Party could sell this to folks in Taiwan. In the years since 2014, there have actually been a number of new worrisome moments for Hong Kongers. There have been journalists whose visas yes. have been denied. Something this, is changing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I'm not surprised. 2014 was a signal moment. You know, as they always say, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Xi Jinping will tolerate nothing in Hong Kong. I mean, as long as he's in office, he will try to bring it closer and closer to the mainland, regardless of a deal of 50 years of one country, two systems. It's not even one country, two systems now. It's maybe one country, one and a half systems. I mean, it's very clear what's going on. I'll give you a really good example. Having covered it now off and on for 20 years, in 97, when you talk to people about the handover, people gave their name. They were very open. They were very critical of the Communist Party. During the 2014 Occupy movement, I can remember standing up on one of the elevated walkways right over the tent camp in Admiralty and talking to people who were very critical of the government. And then I would say, well, can I use your name? And they would pause and say, eh, I really, I just, you know, I have to do business in the mainland. They're denying visas to people there. I don't know what the future holds. And I would say, if I'd asked you that question 10 years ago, what would you have said? And they said, yeah, I'd given you my name. That makes a big difference, the willingness to be identified. Um, so there's been and that's a, the creep of authoritarianism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, the creep of authoritarianism, and it's very psychological. And what what it strikes me is in '97 it was a city apart from China, 
And increasingly, as I talked to people there, especially in 2014, the people in Hong Kong started to sound a lot like the people that I talked to in Shanghai because they felt the weight of the authoritarian government, the fear of scrutiny, and the fear that they would be persecuted for something that they said. So in October of this past year, a Financial Times journalist was denied the renewal of his visa. And in September 2018, the pro-independence party was banned. Those two things feel to me like another pivot moment. It is. And I think that you want to, you know, it's interesting. There's that we, you just talked about creeping authoritarianism. There are moments, though, that are markers where you say, well, that never happened before. And in my conversations with journalists in Hong Kong and other folks, the denial of the visa, if you worked in mainland China, one of the ways that they try to put pressure on foreign correspondents is to withhold people's visas. If I want to go and work in mainland China, I need to get a journalist visa. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not easy. They're not that interested. But you could always go to Hong Kong. You didn't have to apply for a journalist. That's a fundamental difference. If you're a reporter, flying to Hong Kong wasn't much difference than going to Chicago. I mean, there was no, as long as you had your passport, you could come in and report. In your book, you have a character who actually goes to work in Hong Kong, but lives in mainland China. Yes. She actually uh, is an investment banker. Both of her parents are Communist Party officials. She was very unhappy with the corruption and the censorship, some of the things we've been talking about. So like a lot of mainland well-to-do and sort of sophisticated mainland Chinese, she has she moved to the West. And she did an MBA in the United States thinking she would stay there. Well, five months after she arrived or so, President Trump became president. And she lost quite a bit of faith in the democratic system and decided to come back to China, which she had all but sworn to me she would never do. She came back and she lived in Shenzhen. Now, Can you describe Shenzhen for people? Yeah, I will. And Shenzhen is not what it once was. If you went back 40 years, it was a fishing community. There was not much there. 20 some years ago when I started going there, it was a giant factory town and pretty rough and tumble and not sophisticated. Today, it's unrecognizable. It's the home of Huawei, of other big tech giants. Uh, it's a very successful city. I think the, the lifestyle and the quality of life is very high. And she returns to Shenzhen, works in Hong Kong, and she's able to do so. It's easy because now there's like a 17-minute bullet train. Oh. I think that trip used to take me 40 or 50 minutes to do. So it's phenomenal. And what's interesting there is that The Chinese government is great at infrastructure, as we know. It provides tremendous convenience. But a lot of people in Hong Kong were actually against the bullet train because it was going to create Chinese territory inside Hong Kong. There would be an area where you got off the train and it was still treated as Chinese territory. Chinese police could operate. And people saw that as the camel's nose under the tent. And I agree with them. I mean, They're not fools. And that gets us to the extradition law that's being debated right now. Sure. And so there's this whole sense of the mainland sort of encroaching on Hong Kong's identity and Hong Kong's values. And in in the case of the bullet train, very cleverly saying, I mean, which is kind of the deal with the Chinese people, will give you wealth and opportunity and convenience, but not political freedom. What do you think Hong Kong's values are versus the Communist Party leadership values? Mm. Hong Kong values are, they're not Western values in the sense that they're Chinese. And so there are lots of cultural differences between Chinese and the West. And the biggest mistake anybody in the West can make is to think they are like us. They aren't and they never will be. And that's a good thing, I think. But I think when it comes to particularly like in the United States, 
If Americans go to Hong Kong and they chat with people there, they will identify with them in terms of freedom of information, freedom of speech, the absolutely crucial importance of the rule of law and not a judiciary that is essentially an arm of a, an authoritarian party, which is what it is. If you're talking to somebody, and I've not talked to people in the, in the leadership of China, there's no access to folks like that, the Chinese government would see the world very differently. They would argue that there's not much room for this sort of thing, that they couldn't have done what they've done in terms of economic development had they not had a strong hand in a country of 1.4 billion people that Sun Yat-sen once called a loose tray of stand which is, you know, the, the need to... And a lot of foreign correspondents were sympathetic to this in the 90s because it is a hard place to run. <laughs> it can be quite chaotic. One of the brilliance of Chinese government repression is they get you to censor yourself. You don't know where the lines are. So you are always, you know, you don't know. So you're always careful not even to get near that line. And you do the work for them. The second week of June, we saw the beginnings of tremendous protests in Hong Kong, which haven't dissipated yet. And they're all around a new extradition law that's being debated. Can you explain the law? Yeah. Uh, what this is about is the opportunity, the legal ability to extradite people from Hong Kong to stand trial in mainland China. And why are people upset about it? Because the conviction rate in mainland China is 99%. Why would you ever accept that? You know what this is about. So... Talking about these markers, which is a, I think it's a really good way to look at this because the markers do tell you what's happening. A number of years ago, I can't remember exactly, Chinese state security began kidnapping booksellers from Hong Kong. Again, like the visa denial, this had never happened before. One man named Gui Min Hai was rendered from his apartment in Thailand. I know his daughter. I've interviewed his daughter in England. People saw that as terrifying because it was driven by a concern by the party or someone in the party that the books that were being produced, which were very salacious and not well-sourced, no one is claiming this is great investigative journalism or literature, um, this was an attempt to shut that down and a willingness to basically pluck people from wherever and then put them on China Central Television making forced confessions, which I think, you know, pretty familiar. So if you're in Hong Kong and you think, well, I could be extradited for any number of things, I mean, what if I do something here that China considers violating a law? Um, so I think people are very, very concerned about where that would lead. And I think if you look at everything the Communist Party has been doing in the last five years with Hong Kong, it's pretty obvious where they're going with this. The crackdown on the demonstrations has been dramatic. There have been reports of violence, reports of rubber bullets being fired into crowds. Tell me a little bit about that. And is that a difference? I don't remember rubber bullets in 2014, and I was out in the crowds. And it was actually the crowds, you know, these things are messy. <laughs> I mean, let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of anger, and um, the protesters will throw things at the police, and the protesters don't like being hit with pepper spray. What I remember is I still have a hard hat that I wore <laughs> from when I was out there and goggles and things along those lines, but it does feel more violent. It was also huge. I don't – up until the extradition law, I don't think we anticipated that there would be a massive outpouring like this. Um, but, but again, it's been triggered and we've seen this before. If I remember, I wasn't covering China at the time, but I believe – maybe around 2002, 2004, there was also a national security law. And every time, 
What's the national security law? It, it was a way to criminalize some form of free speech or that sort of thing. And people just saw it as a symbol or, you know, or one more tactic for the Chinese government to kind of rein in. There seems to me to be a sense of desperation among the protesters that this may be a last rallying cry for democracy. But I'm not sure if I'm just reading it from, you know, an armchair in Washington. Uh, No, I think you're probably pretty accurate. The deck is stacked against Hong Kong. And I think that people who care about democracy, care about freedom, I think would look at this. It's it is David and Goliath. Goliath holds most of the cards, though not all of them. And when you watch it, it's inspiring and noble, especially if you care about these things, if these are your values. I I remember, you know, in the democracy camp in 2014, watching all these Hong Kong people coming together. They built a study hall (laughs) with the kids would be studying and then they would go out and protest. And there was a sense of a community of shared values in Hong Kong coming together to stand up against basically a giant wave that they don't necessarily think they can. I mean, it's like a tsunami. They don't think they can necessarily survive. What I think is remarkable is that they're willing to fight for it the way they do, which says a lot about their values and and how different they see themselves from the vision that the Communist Party leadership has for, for the city. What will happen? I know that the legislature has delayed the vote on the extradition bill. But what do you think will happen with these protests and the bill itself? I don't know. Um, We saw with the national security law in the last decade, they backed off. But that was the last decade. You know, things are different now. I also think that we have the most ruthless leader since Deng Xiaoping in 89 and before that, Mao. It's very clear that Xi Jinping doesn't have much use for this sort of thing. That said, I got to say this. Looking at 2014, I thought Xi Jinping played it well. He let the protests burn themselves out. He did not resort to violence. He did not send in any troops, which would have been a disaster. I mean, that's exactly the wrong thing for him to do. And so he has shown, I think, quite a bit of restraint. It would not surprise me if he did the same thing um, and maybe bring this back at a certain time or try to push it through and let the protests. You know, everyone does have a job. (laughs) People do have to go to work and go to school. And what they did with 2014, I can remember my, my pictures, you know, from September or whenever it was, when it was very warm. And my last pictures were of Christmas decorations around the tent camp. But he waited them out. And eventually, when they decided to clear the camp, there was no resistance. Because I think he wanted them to come to the realization that resistance was futile. And I think he may try the same thing. I just don't, I don't know. What we're seeing in Xinjiang might suggest he might take a harsher line. But the best way to radicalize a population is to get very aggressive with them. But we've we've seen the party do that. We're only halfway through the 50-year grace period yeah, that Hong Kong was given. It's clear the party's reneged on the deal. And the British can't do anything about it. I mean, they're the fifth largest economy in the world. They don't have any leverage. They're reneging on the deal. We talked about the American dream and the American dream in China. But I'm actually interested in in what in the 90s used to be called the end of history, which was that we were moving towards a time where authoritarianism would naturally fall, that people would claim open society, freedom of speech and democracy as their rightful patrimony. Where are we with that now? Well, if there's an end of history, it seems a long way off right now. 
There's been a resurgence of authoritarianism. Uh, I mean, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping are perfect examples. Also a resurgence of nationalism, as we've seen in this country and United Kingdom, where I live, uh, in terms of when I look at, look at the Brexiteers uh, in Parliament and elsewhere. And I think, you know, in China, Xi Jinping talks about China as being an example, which would have been unthinkable six, seven years ago. The Chinese were always before that would say, well, we're, you know, we have a special system because we have bigger problems and more challenges than most of the rest of the world. He's now trying to persuade people that actually authoritarianism leads to a much more prosperous society. So it's a direct challenge to particularly what America, the American government is always saying, which is democracy is the right way to go. And in China, you have an economically an extraordinarily successful country, and then it's used as economic might to build an, uh, rapidly a, a much more powerful military. So the end of history seems much further away. It feels more cyclical mm-hmm. in the sense that I think there are periods when you will see a lot more democracy, and right now you see kind of a retrenchment into authoritarianism. Does seeing these protesters in the streets of Hong Kong give you hope? Well, I mean, hope, but hope, but very much in the long run. What they're proving is that they're not kind of the materialistic sheep they've been, they were portrayed to be 20, 25, 30 years ago in Hong Kong. I don't think people thought of Hong Kong as a political place. And in my conversations with people, particularly in 2014 in the camps, it was clear that people had a political consciousness that they did not have in 1997, which is terrible news for the Chinese Communist Party, <laughs> that what they want is for people to just fall in line. And in fact, the repression and the, the pressure that it's putting on Hong Kong is creating a political consciousness. Frank, thank you so much for coming in. Happy to do it. That was Frank Langford. He's a correspondent for NPR and the author of The Shanghai Free Taxi, Journeys with the Hustlers and Rebels of the New China. First Person is produced by me, Sarah Wildman, along with Benjamin Soloway and Maya Gandhi. Our editor is Rob Sachs, and our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.